Welcome. We are so glad you've joined us today. Are you ready for another Bayside Christian Church podcast? Let's get straight into it. So I'm, I'm going to attempt to do something today that um, is, is, is probably my, my riskiest choice. Uh, it, the, the, the least risky is to do a rah-rah motivational thing, which we need that sometimes, and I can do that. Um, but I, I actually want to answer a hard question. So here's what I'm hearing around the place, because I, 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 travel, I travel around the whole of Australia, uh, um, America, um, Singapore, uh, Europe, South Africa. I, I was in 21 different towns in August. Um, I, I did three rural tours, so I was, I, I was in like Toowoomba, Kingaroy, and Gainda, right? I was, in, uh, I, I, was in, I was in Tokoroa, Rotorua, and Teronga in New Zealand, and then, and then I did a New South Wales one where I was in... Um, I was in Tamworth, Narrabri, Glen Ennis, uh, Newcastle, and then back to West Sydney, back to back to back to back. I think I drove 21 hours or something. The, the gap between towns, down, it was un... I thought, did I accidentally turn? I don't know what is happening right now. So, <clears throat> so, so I've, I've been around the place, and here's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing a couple things that are quite discouraging for pastors, and I want to turn it and encourage, okay? So, so, so here's what I'm hearing. One is that people under 30 don't believe the Bible anymore. Okay, um, and that is in general true. Uh, and but it, I'll, I'm going to tell you why that's encouraging. And the reason that's encouraging is because it's our fault. Okay, and and if it's our fault, we can fix it, right? All right. So so the reason it's our fault is because the people controlling the narrative around Scripture have to take responsibility for how we've spoken about it and speak of it in more compelling ways. Now, I'm not going to just present you with a problem. I'm going to do all sorts of solutions to make this better, right? I'm just presenting the problem up front. So, so first is that is pastors are telling me this all around the place that their people under 30 don't believe the Bible anymore, right? And, and I tell you when it's hitting home is when a pastor gets into their mid-50s and their children are 26 and they're coming and then privately telling them, I don't think I buy this anymore. Now, that's a bit of a panic, right? Then that's when they, that's when it matters, right? And so then they, Shane, can you help my kid? So it's, it's that. The second thing I'm hearing is that Christianity is in, in decline, all right? And I think those two things are related. Um, I don't think number two is true. Number one is definitely true. And if you're in denial about that, um, please wake up about that because we need to be proactive, not reactive when it comes to um, how our young people view scripture. But um, the idea that Christianity is in decline, I don't think is true. I can see why people would think it appears to be true, but I don't think it's true. I think there's a better way to look at that. I don't think Christianity is in decline. I think Christianity is being forced to grow up. And that is, that is two different things. Um, <clears throat> what, what's, what's happening is Yes. And, and Sir Thomas More was on to something. Sir Thomas More said that if uneducated people were ever able to give their opinions about Scripture, it would harm society, right? Now, he was right about that. Now, his response to that was to burn people alive who were caught owning a copy with, of the Bible without credentials. That was a massive overreaction, right? But, but his principle of you should be trained before you are allowed to pass your opinion about something as important as scripture, right? That's absolutely true, right? And let's just be honest, you guys are pastors. When uneducated people, even if they're well-meaning, when they pass their opinion about the Bible in a vitriolic way on the internet, it doesn't make your job harder. Easier, sorry. It makes your job harder, right? Even if, and especially when they have a huge platform because of their professionalism in one endeavor, and then all of a sudden they think that gives them a platform 
in another endeavor. It just doesn't. Look, I, I had to be checked earlier uh, last year for, they, uh, for, to make sure I didn't have cancer um, in, in my bowel, right? And, and it was all good, right? So, but, but Christians asked me before I was going to the doctor, is it a Christian doctor? I'm like, I don't know. I, well, I don't know that I want a Christian doctor. I want the best doctor, right? Like, I, I know Christian idiots. I know Christian <laughs> jerks. I, like, are you, are you kidding me right now, right? Just because somebody has proficiency in one endeavor doesn't automatically give them the same amount of proficiency in another. So let me just say something that should be obvious. Just because they're well-meaning and a great rugby player does not make them a Bible expert, okay? Thank you. Thank you, right? Right? It is, it, is her, it is hermeneutical nonsense to interpret the kingdom of God as going to heaven when you die, okay? You have to do mental hula hoops. Now, they mean well. They have a huge platform because of other endeavors, but when that stuff goes on the internet, it doesn't help us. It doesn't help what we're trying to do. It surely doesn't help our under 30s believe the Bible more, and it surely doesn't um, mean Christianity is on the increase, but it does mean that Christianity is being forced to grow up. Let me explain what I mean by that. For the most part, Christian language is infantile. Now, and, and what I mean by that is sometimes that's necessary. Let me give you an example, okay? If you have a three-year-old and your three-year-old calls you into his bedroom and says, Daddy, there's a monster underneath my bed. I'm terrified. Well, at three, here's what you would do. You'd go, well, let me check, right? And you'd pretend to look under the bed. And you're like, look, there's no monster there. I just checked. And here's the thing. All monsters are scared of your daddy. They all are. So as long as your daddy's in the house, no monster can get you. And the kid goes, thank you, daddy, right? Now, that is very psychologically healthy for the kid to not lay there in terror. It's also okay to use metaphors like that and not be literal when it comes to dealing with a three-year-old, right? But if an eight-year-old said that, you might have a different talk, right? And if a 23-year-old said that, it's a massively different talk, right? And so if you speak to three-year-olds the same way you speak to 23-year-olds about pain and suffering and, and things like this, and so for Far too long, what's happening is, you know, because let's just let's just call it what it is, right? One of the worship leaders at Hillsong says he's not a Christian anymore, right? And then and then people, and then for whatever reason, it puts it on the internet, right? And then and then people start panicking, right? And so Christians go, well. I guess you were never one of us anyway. And they have a verse for that, right? Which is a you have to do mental hula hoops to use that verse that way and it's not effective not one time in your whole life have you ever made someone feel like crap and they were like you know what now that I feel like crap I'm going to join your thing right it just doesn't work right and so you have all of this stuff going on but but if you actually read what they're saying it's just a lack of language they're using words like, I'm not a Christian. But if you read the whole thing, what they're saying is, is that the language I've been given does not work for me anymore. And I don't know what to do with that other than to say, I'm not that. And actually, I'm not that either. But that doesn't mean I'm not a Christian, right? And so, and so we need better language for this. And this is my goal today is to talk about personal growth and to talk about language around these things. And hopefully I'll be very helpful. And what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk for about oh, 35, 40 minutes at this point. And then, and then we're going to uh, we're gonna stop and have a Q&A at some point, okay? So, so and let, me, it, let me define that, okay? A Q&A must be a Q, 
all right? So it must be, if, if you stand up and don't ask a question, you're just giving your theological position, and that's boring, and I don't think any of us care. So, so that, that's one. Two, two, it needs to be a good question has to have two aspects to it. One, it needs to be mutually edifying and non-antagonistic, okay? Mutually edifying and non-antagonistic. Look, somewhere walking the earth today is the rightest person about God. I don't know where they are. I'm certain they're not in this room, right? Somewhere, probably in a cave in Nepal, somewhere, somebody is the rightest person on earth about God. I'm talking about the person God looks down and goes, I'm almost impressed. That is really, really good. Now, whoever that person is, they probably understand maybe one one thousandth of one percent of what God is on their best day. And they're the rightest, right? Which means we're all, we're all below that, which is why the world finds us so boring. When people who might understand one one thousandth of one percent get vitriolic, pedantic, and dogmatic about the one one thousandth of one percent they think they know, and then they go so far to say that's all there is. And it's like, how boring can we possibly make this thing, right? right? Because here's the thing. If I understand one one thousandth of one percent, and you understand one one-thousandth of one percent, and they just so happen to be different one one-thousandths of one percent, if we humble ourselves and listen to one another, we might actually leave with two one-thousandths of one percent. We would have, in fact, doubled our understanding and still not really know much, right? So that's, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about an infinite, an infinite God. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing that I deal with, and here's the thing that you deal with, right? And this is the most challenging thing. In a digital world where everything's recorded and posted, right, what do you do, right? Because everybody's room is a leader, and here's what leaders do. They have to navigate the tension between their personal growth arc and the corporate tolerance arc, right? So progress works on two arcs. One, personal growth, right? And your personal growth arc will curve much, much, much more sharply than the corporate tolerance arc. Here's why. You as a person can read one book, listen to one message, and get moved like, whoa, and you get excited and you get changed and it's like, wow, right? But here's the thing. As leaders, you're having to navigate that personal growth through a corporate tolerance, right? And corporate tolerance moves much slower. You can't move 100 people as fast as you can move one. And wisdom says that you have to navigate the tension and the gap between your personal growth and what the whole body can tolerate at one time, right? And if you ever misjudge that gap, you'll be right, but you hold, right? You'll be correct, but you'll be on your way out the door, right? And it's not because you're wrong. It's just because you misjudge the gap between where you are and where people can handle it, right? And that doesn't make you a hypocrite. It makes you wise. Look, just because you have personal liberties that you can't share with the entire corporation makes you wise. It doesn't make you a hypocrite. I'll give you an example, right? I was at a church once, and um, there was a man that came back to the table, and he had the F word um, tattooed to his forehead, okay? Uh, so so it, it, it wasn't like it was on his neck, or it, it was on his forehead, right? The F word, but here's the problem. He had done it himself while high in a mirror, so it was actually backwards. So, so it said, Sakuf, right? <coughs> right? And, and, 
And have you ever like tried not to look at something, right? Like, like it's, it's, it's very, very difficult, especially when it's on their forehead, because normally it's like maintain eye contact, maintain eye contact. But when it's on their forehead, it's right there. I could not stop looking at it. And I knew he was looking at me, and I kept, I, I could not say, he had the F word tattooed backwards on his forehead, okay? So give me some grace here as well. So finally, I just owned it. I was like, sir, I got to ask you, man. Look, no judgment, but you you got the F word attached to your forehead here. And he goes, I know, I know. He said, I don't know if you noticed. He said, but I did it myself. I said, I did. (laughs) I I, I did. I did notice. He said, it was in a mirror. I said, I got that. I, I, I got that. I said, I said, what's your story? He said, man, he said, I was high on drugs, and, and I, I just thought I was angry. I thought it was a good idea, you know. He said, I regretted it immediately, you know. I said, yeah. He said, but he said, I've been clean and sober now for almost a year. I got my uh, chip, you know. And I said, right. He said, I love this church. I said, let me ask you a question. Are the people here, has the pastor here and the people been nice to you? He said, yes. Very, very nice. Very, very nice. And I said, right. I said, I said so what's, what's been happening? He said, well, the pastor told me that I could be a fully functioning member here. I can serve in any ministry except for the front door. I can't be, I, I can't, and that's fair enough, right? I can't, hi, welcome to church, right? I can't, right, right, right. And I can't serve in children's church until it's removed, right? And he said, so I'm saving. He said, the pastor has made a deal with me. Every dollar I save to get it removed, he's matching it. Now, now the pastor can't be any nicer than that, right? right? Now, here's my point, right? My mom has 2,500 employees, okay? She is a major corporate executive, right? My mom does not have a personal issue with someone with the F word attached to their forehead. She'd have a meal with that person. She'd have that person in their house. She, she would have no personal arc problems, but she can't put them in charge of customer service, right? right? And so when it comes to spiritual things, there are times where we Actually, you must be growing faster than the rest of everybody else. And wisdom says, wait a minute, for me to move this group of people, I have to judge the gap between my personal growth arc and where it will topple the thing, right? And so, and so with all that in mind, let's talk about the Bible for a second, okay? And I want to give us a more compelling way to talk about it. And I, I, I actually, we've got so much time today, I'm going to take my time because I think it's more important that we get this. Then, then I rush through it. So if you could bring that first slide up. When we talk about truth, we need to discipline ourselves to speak of truth always in a Trinitarian structure. That just means it has three legs to it. Now, if you remove any of these three legs, it's not less truthful. It's just less meaningful, right? You can't be more truthful than truth, right? So, so if you only focus on one leg, it's still the truth, but you're, you're speaking of it in, in the, frankly, the least meaningful way humanly possible, okay? So, so let's talk about all three um, slowly because I, I want us to get this. Truth exists on a Trinitarian structure. The three parts are the literal or the objective. The second part is the symbolic or the meaning. And the third part is the eventual nature of truth, Right? So a more mature way of speaking of truth is making sure we, we uh, look at all three of these. And, 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 and it makes sure that uh, what people are sick of is when we talk of God in infantile ways. Or we talk of God as an object. 
Like it's, it's got, like like an object that exists outside of us. Like th- this is why th- this is why you, you realize how infantile it is for two people to stand on a stage and debate whether God exists or not. That's just dumb, and it's boring. And there's a reason it's boring, right? Right? Because God, if all of us know God does not exist, that is ridiculous. We would agree with someone that says God does not exist. Why? Because God does not exist. To to exist means. It has to be an object outside of you. A better way to speak of God is rather God insists, right? That God is the force holding all of creation together. He's not a singular object sitting on a throne somewhere. If somebody said God's an object sitting on a throne somewhere, we would all go, no, no, no. God is God is bigger, better, way more profound than that. That God is the name we give to the force that's literally weaving in and out of all of creation, holding the whole entire thing together, right? That's what we talk about when we talk about God. And so we dumb that down to some guy sitting on a throne. Some, that, is, that is an absurd thought. And so when we do that, when we, when we make God an object, then, then we have to come up with language and we say things like, just come to God. He'll give you meaning. No, he won't. God is not that which gives meaning. God is that which renders all things meaningful. And that is two different things, right? Right. It's like love that way. Love doesn't have a meaning. Love, define love. Really? No way. Love doesn't have a meaning. Love is that which renders all things meaningful. Like you can have nothing, but if you have love, you can't help but experience your life as meaningful. But you can have everything and have not love, and you can't help but experience your life as meaningless. God is not that which gives meaning. God is that which defies meaning and renders all things meaningful. In that sense, God is trauma. A trauma is anything we experience that fundamentally shifts the way we see our whole world after we experience it, right? That, and that, that is normally spoken of in negative ways, right? So I came out of Woolworths and I saw an armed robbery. I was traumatized by that. Yes, appropriate use of trauma. I, I was flying from Harvey Bay to Brisbane and one of the propellers fell off. Yeah, I was traumatized by it. Yes, yes, that's not how it's supposed to work, and now it changes the way I see my whole world. If anything, Jesus is trauma, right? Like, Jesus did not enter into the world to give meaning. Jesus entered into the world to enter into what people thought meaning is and bust it wide open. That is two different things. For the God of the universe to wash people's feet instead of demanding his feet to be washed, that is not how it's supposed to, that is traumatic. That is not how it's supposed to work. For, for, hey, in your experience, do dead people stay dead? Yes, but, but resurrection is the birthplace of Christianity. So actually, Christianity is not birthed in clear meaning. Christianity is birthed in an event that says, hey, you never know when God might enter into what you think the conclusion is and bust it wide open and give you infinite more possibilities. This is a way better way to talk about it than, hey, come to us and we'll give you all the answers. No, we won't. No, we won't. Or, hey, come to God, sing four songs, and all your pain will leave. No, it won't. God is not that which enters in. God is not not that which eliminates our pain. God is that which enters into the suffering with us and removes a bit of the sting of it. That is a better way to speak of it, right? So, so when we look at these three aspects, let's talk about the first one first, the literal. The, the literal means somebody wrote something down. Somebody told a story. And if it's written in the Bible, we should be asking questions about that. Like, like why did someone write that down? Why is that in the story? What's going on in that thing? Now, hold on to something. This is very important for your young people. Sometimes the literal is fiction. 
Okay? Breathe. The Bible is full of fiction. Breathe. And you already know that. I'll give you an example. If, if I took you to Israel and we asked the history expert, excuse me, could you take me to the farm where the parable of the prodigal son actually happened? That guy would look at you like, what? That is a fiction story. That was made up. It's called a parable. Jesus made up that story in order to make a moral life point, right? It's fiction. So sometimes the literal is fiction. It doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's not literal. And sometimes the most profound truths are told in non-literal form, right? You can't interpret something that was originally intended to be metaphor as if it's literal and pretend that we're doing any favors to the story. It does not do that, right? 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 It, but, but the parable of the prodigal son is literal in the sense that Jesus literally told the story, right? But I, I, I've been all over the world I've been asked to do Q&As everywhere. Like probably the biggest Q&A I've ever done was 1,500 people under the age of 25 with two microphones. And essentially they said, any problem you have with the Bible, ask that guy, right? Because what could go wrong? And here's the thing, right? (laughs) Instead of judging their questions, what I disciplined myself to do, not perfectly, but I attempted to, is to be judged by their questions. I allowed their questions to show me where there's gaps in our communication, right? So instead of going, no, you shouldn't ask that. What's wrong with your faith, right? You're never amongst us anyway. Stupid stuff we say. No, no. Instead of judging their questions, I allowed myself, I made a list of all their questions and then allowed myself to be judged by it. Because if they're asking their question, if they're asking that question with the right heart that way, that means there's a gap in how we communicate it. And here's what I've come up with. This is a completely made-up statistic, but it's my guess, okay? Roughly 80%, 85% of all the problems that young people have with the Bible is genre confusion, okay? It's interpreting one genre as if it's another, right? You can't genre confuse. It doesn't work. And the Bible's got lots of genres. There's not just one genre right? There's law, there's ancient history, there's no such thing as modern history in the Bible, it didn't exist. There's ancient history, there's poems, there's plays, there's wisdom, there's prophetic literature, there's competing biographies comparing Jesus to Caesar, there's, there's one really weird one called apocalyptic, right? And you, you can't interpret one genre as if it is another. Let me give you an example. You can't interpret Proverbs as promises, and then expect your young people not to be disillusioned one day. A proverb's not a promise. It's a proverb. A proverb is a wisdom observation about how the world generally works. And it's good stuff to live by, right? Give you an example. This is in Proverbs. If you answer your enemy softly, their anger will turn from you. Is that true? In general, in general, that is a wisdom way to live. Is it a promise? No. Jesus answered his enemy softly, and last time I checked, they killed him. (laughs) Why? It wasn't because he didn't have enough faith in the word. It's because sometimes people kill you even when you're living with wisdom. Now, so you can't interpret proverbs as promises. You can't interpret poems as history books, right? You cannot interpret poems as science books, They're not science books. They're poems. 
I could not believe this one. I heard this was a while back in a huge Q&A in Melbourne. Somebody asked me, how could I possibly follow a God who lied in writing? Now, they were asking a good question. I said, please explain. They said, well, I count at least 80 times in the Bible God promises us to protect us from our enemies. I said, yeah. She said, but then there's an entire book dedicated to God in writing, admitting that he allowed Satan to kill a man's entire family and take all of his stuff. Now, why would you trust a God that promises you one thing and then admits at least to one guy that not only did he let bad things happen to him, that he unleashed Satan on his life trying to win a bar bet. She said, could you explain that? Is God allowed to lie? And if God's allowed to lie, why would you trust him? Or is God random? And if God is random, then how could you trust a random God? Because literally the definition of not trustworthy is someone that's random. So if God's random or a liar, you're still trusting an untrustworthy source. Could you help me how you, how you do all that? Now, is that a good question or a bad question? That's a flipping good question. And it was asked really kindly. And, um, and, and I said to her, I said, well, could you, could you clarify what book you're talking about? She said, Job. I said, right. And I just asked her, now the problem with her question is genre confusion. I just asked her one question. I said, is Job a history book? She said, I don't know. I said, well, that's pretty important. I said, you seem pretty smart. Was there a history section in the Old Testament? She said, yeah. I said, what books are in there? And I helped her. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuels, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Right? She said, yeah. I said, is the book of Job in the history section? She said, no. I said, what section is the book of Job in? She said, the poetry section. I said, right. I said, what does that tell you? She put her hands on her head and she went, it's a poem. I said, yes, Job is a poem. How do we know it's a poem? Because it's in the poetry section. And the book of Job starts with a council meeting of the gods. Does this sound like history to you? And in the council meeting of the gods, the, the Hasatan, the Satan, the Hasatan stands up and challenges God as to the righteousness of Job and essentially says, he's only righteous because you bless him. If you don't bless him, he won't be righteous. And God's like, no. I think he will. And they make a bar bet about how righteous Job actually is in his heart. And the whole thing is a play about how you engage suffering. It's wisdom literature. It's a poem. It's not meant to be read literally. Plus, God does stuff like show up in whirlwinds and speak. This has massive poetic elements to it. And it doesn't do that book any favor interpreting it as literal history when it's written as a poem. It was interpreted as a poem. And the people who put the Old Testament together put it in the poetry section. The people who know the most about it put it in the poetry section. To interpret Job literally is as absurd as interpreting the Song of Solomon literally. Like, was her nose actually a tower? <laughs> Were her legs actually cedar trees? Were her breasts really as big as the hills of Bashan? No. <laughs> Poem, right? So 
the genre confusion is, is the issue, right? So, so good hermeneutics says, wait a minute, what genre is that? And let's interpret it within that genre. Good hermeneutics also says that sometimes the Bible's telling you what God said. Sometimes the Bible's just telling you what happened. And sometimes the Bible's showing you where people were at the time it was written. It's a great story that illustrates this in, um, in 2 Kings 3, where essentially, if I could, uh, if I could uh, summarize it, um, there's, a, there's a Moabite king named Misha, and he owes the, the king of Judah 100,000 lambs. The king of Judah, I'm so, it's a big story. The king of Judah dies, and his son takes over. And Misha says, actually... Actually, I owe your dad 100,000 lambs. I don't technically owe you 100,000 lambs. And since your dad's now dead, I'm free of my debt. The king of Judah says, no, you're going to pay me. Misha says, make me. I'm bigger than you. King of Judah says, well, you've miscalculated things, bro. This is like survivor on speed. You've miscalculated things, bro. I've got five kings that are willing to pledge their armies to help me collect the debt. Well, this is bad, right? So five kings descend upon Misha to collect the 100,000 lambs debt, right? Misha, instead of just paying the 100,000 lambs, doubles down. And he puts himself in this fortress with his army. And he does a last-ditch effort to try to overcome it by outflanking the Edomites on the right side. And it fails. And so, Ed- and so, so Misha is now in trouble. He's stuck in a fortress, stronghold, and he's surrounded by five armies. Instead of waving the white flag and paying the 100,000 lambs, he doubles down again. And this is what he does. It says, this is all in 2 Kings 3. It says he took his firstborn son to the top of the wall of the fortress, and he asked the power of the Moabite God to rush in front of him and destroy the Israelites. And he took a sword and he sacrificed his firstborn son on the wall of the fortress, hoping that that sacrifice would ignite the wrath of the Moabite God onto the Israelite armies. Now, who wrote 2 Kings? Israelites. You would expect the next verse to be, but since there's no such thing as a Moabite God, that didn't work and we got our 100,000 lambs. Uh-uh. It says, so therefore a great wrath came upon Israel and we all fled for our lives end of the story. So sometimes the Bible's telling you what God said. Sometimes the Bible is accurately recording a history story that shows you where people thought, what they thought at the time. And good hermeneutics says, wait a minute, they used to think that, but look at how the world got better and better and better. Look how much more we understand about God today. But we, if we speak of the scripture statically, we ruin it, right? So, so first, there's a literal objective nature of truth, right? Which is somebody wrote a story. Somebody wrote something down. Somebody told something, right? And we need to examine that. But all the power of truth is found in the symbolic or the meaning of it. Let me explain what I mean. Let's take something that combines and unites all Christians everywhere, right? So I've met Christians from all over the place today, and I've spoke all over your region. But here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. Here's the thing that unites us all, the cross and resurrection, right? Right? So that's the thing. I'm safe no matter what, right? So, so the cross and resurrection, right? And is the cross and resurrection, does it have a literal element to it? Of course it does. There's a literal element, a literal objective element. We embrace that Jesus literally was killed at the hands of the Romans on a cross, and we also embrace that three days later Jesus rose again and conquered death, right? We embrace that. But let's say, let's say there was a guy 
or a team of people who, who decided, you know what? The world would be better if they believed that that happened literally. And we're going to give our whole life to researching all the historical evidence and all the scientific evidence that Jesus literally lived, literally died, and literally rose from the dead. And let's say they do a really good job with this. And let's say they write a 457-page thesis paper revealing their findings. And let's say that it's so well done, it would stand up in the Supreme Court of Queensland as evidence-based activity, right? Let's just say these guys did good. And let's say that they don't even want to make money from it. They're so convinced that their work would change the world that they post it online for free. Anybody can click on it and and read it. These people, they're not charlatans. They're not profiteering. They're genuine, sincere, authentic people who did a massive research project over, say, 25 years, and they compiled all this historical and, and scientific evidence that Jesus literally lived, literally died, literally rose from the dead. How many of us would agree with them? All of us, that, that, that's not a trick. Okay, let's think about that for a second. Okay? Like, oh, I don't know, what? Okay, all right. Jesus literally lived, literally died, literally rose from the dead. How many of us would agree with their findings? How many of us would be bored by page two? All of us. So that's what I mean by that. If you only focus on the literal nature of truth without an exploration of the symbolic, the meaning, and the eventual nature of truth, it's not less truthful, it's just less meaningful. It's more boring. Listen, if you read the Noah's Ark story and your only thought is, we need to build a boat to prove that actually happened, you're the most boring person on the planet, right? That's what you get out of that, that it could actually happen, that God thought of somewhere to put the elephant poop. Really? That's what you thought, right? Like, that's the only way to read that story? Are you kidding me right now? Right? It's, it's not. This is why... This is why we find debates between humanists and Christians so boring, right? So if, if, if you're the type of person that clicks on YouTube things, Christian destroys humanist in a debate. Uh, for, first of all, uh, is that really what we want to be known for? People who destroy people with our words? That, that's first. So, second, it's so boring, and it never happens that way, right? It's just clickbait. And third, please give your life to something more interesting than that. So here, but here's why it's boring, right? If a humanist is debating a Christian, right? This is why you're bored. The Christian goes, no, humanism is bupkis, and here's the seven reasons why Christianity is the only way, right? The humanist says, no, Christianity is bupkis. It's based in myth, not facts, and here's the seven reasons why humanism is the only way. Now, here's why that's boring. Let's say for the sake of example that both people are so compelling that they simultaneously convert the other, Okay, so, so you'll never see this, but let, let's just say, let's say that both of them, the humanist is so compelling, the Christian's like, nope, I'm being a humanist now. But let's say the problem is, is the Christian is so compelling, the humanist says, no, I'm being a Christian now. So at the exact same millisecond, they convert one another. What's changed? Nothing. And that's the definition of boredom. When both people get what they want and nothing changed. That's why you're bored. Because at the level of what, something changed. But at the level of how people believe it, nothing's changed. If the humanist becomes the same kind of Christian he was a humanist, he'll end up on a stage arguing boring stuff. And if the Christian becomes the same kind of humanist he was a Christian, he'll end up on a stage arguing boring stuff. Right? Like, like if we don't change the how we believe something, if we only change the what we believe instead of the how we believe it, it, it just cre- you just trade in one thing, one tyranny for another. Like if a Ku Klux Klan member gets saved and comes to Jesus... And he changes what he believes, but he doesn't change how he believes it. If you listen to that Ku Klux Klan member's preaching, it'll be hateful. 
right? Because he just traded one version of hate for another. Without ch- you can change the what without changing the how. And that's why your young people are boring, it, are, are, are bored. It's, it's not about the what. It's almost always about the how we believe what we believe, right? right? So, so, so the literal. The literal of the cross and resurrection is powerful, but it's more powerful when we investigate all three. Let's see if I can illustrate this with a flag. So let's say if during the break, not a drunk person, drunk person, you don't understand, a sober person. Let's say a sober person was out here um, during our morning tea in the, in the front garden there. And, um, and let's say he's going to the toilet on an Australian flag, right? So he's, he's have, put aside the crudeness of it. It's, he's going to the toilet on an Australian flag. How many of us would be irritated by that? Yeah, a lot, all of us. But, but why? It's just thread and cloth. That's all a flag is. It's literally thread and cloth. Why would you be offended? Well, it's because you know that all the power of that flag is not in the literal thread and cloth, but rather in all the meanings that flag stands for, right? Or, or maybe we could say, maybe we could use a baby as an illustration, okay? So um, let's say a woman is really pregnant, and let's say she's going to give birth, right? And, and, and let's say you go to wherever you go to give birth or wherever the hospital is, and she ends up in the delivery room. Now, I've never given birth. I've never seen a birth. I don't have any children. I don't think I've missed much, but here's the thing. I know, I know what, what I know about childbirth, it seems hectic, okay? It, like, it, it is a hectic process to get a life into this world, right? It's, it's something. So it looks something like this. <laughs> Something like that. That's what, because I get all my information from the internet, and that's it's all facts, and that's what you know, right? <clears throat> so, so this woman's given birth, right? She's she's in the process, and at just the right moment, the baby comes. Here it comes. Ready? Ready? Right? And there's the baby, right? That's my best impersonation of that. I don't know how else to do it. So then the so then the doctor does what the doctor does, and they hand this new life to the mom. Now the presence of that new life changes everything. Like the vainest woman you've ever met will allow her photo to be taken without makeup. Why? New life, right? At some point, they hand the baby to the dad. For the sake of this example, let's say the baby is a girl and the dad is moved, like moved. And the dad looks at this baby girl and he can't contain himself hardly. And with all the authenticity in his heart, he doesn't have language for it. He just goes, oh, oh God, oh this is the most beautiful girl in the whole wide world, right? Now, what if Sheldon Cooper's in the room? <clears throat> if you, are, you, are you a communist? Who's Sheldon Cooper? All right, so, uh, if, all right, so, so Sheldon Cooper's in the room, and he takes everything literally, and he goes, he goes, really? Sir, you're not a lover of truth. Actually, there's going to be a lot of girls that are uglier than her, and there's going to be a lot of girls that are prettier than her, She's probably going to be somewhere in the middle. If you were a lover of truth, you should have said, oh, this is the most average girl in the whole wide world, right? Well, if somebody said that, you wouldn't even know what to say. You're like, I'm not speaking literally. This girl isn't literally the most beautiful girl in the whole wide world. This girl has transcended what beauty is and redefined it for me, right? That's what this is, right? So, so it's, but then let's say, let's say on the way home, your neighbor, nine doors down, whom you've never met, has blue balloons in the front yard with a big poster. Welcome to the world, Billy. Now, you would make an assumption. The woman in that house has had a baby. It's a baby boy, and his name is Billy. And you can fully affirm the literal nature of that new life. Without that baby meaning one thing to you, you'll likely never think about him again once they take the balloons down. But your baby, you affirm its literal nature, and you affirm that it means everything in the world to you. So there are two levels there. But then 
Let's say you go home and let's say your social activity of choice is dart throwing, right? So the first night back with a new baby, you say, sweetie, I'll see you after darts. You go to your dart club, you throw darts. You do well. You come home next night. Sweetie, I'll see you after darts. You go to your dart club, you throw darts. You come home. Third night, you say, sweetie, I'll see you after darts. You go and you throw darts. You come home. Fourth night, you get sweetie out of your mouth and she says, excuse me, we have a new baby now. And you say, I know, I know. And I fully affirm the literal nature of that new baby. Not only that, that baby means everything to me. But until the presence of that new life has fundamentally shifted the way you see your whole world, it's not less truthful, it's just less meaningful, right? So when we come to the scriptures, we want to ground things in the literal, but commit ourselves to exploring the infinite meanings of it. Because let's take the cross and resurrection, right? What's more powerful of a message? Proving it literally happened or all the meanings attached to it? Like death doesn't get the last word, Jesus does. If we were wrong about death, what else could we be wrong about? Maybe we need to open more conversations about God instead of closing them down. Like you don't owe God one more thing anymore, that you don't serve a God who sits high and mighty. You serve a God who enters into suffering, puts on flesh and blood. You serve that God. You also serve a God who events that faith isn't just confidence when we're winning, but faith is a profound trust in the perceived absence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt like you did everything God asked you to do and he's left you to be. This is what the cross is all about. This is a reminder that the cross is about a God who acts with peace even when we're acting with hostility. So we should do that for our brothers and sisters. It should be the end of hostility. Oh, oh, oh the resurrection means you cannot waste your life. If you did it for God, nothing is wasted. That we get new birth, fresh starts, second chances, clean slates, and the opportunity to write a better story. That new creation can burst forth in the middle of this one and you never know what God might do to your today that changes your tomorrow your tomorrow is not simply a repeat of your yesterday because resurrection is the central part of the story see now you're preaching that's infinitely better than proving it all literally happened like if you read the cross and resurrection and the whole thing is I need to prove it that is boring it's not less truthful it's still truth it's just less meaningful and to speak of truth meaningfully we have to commit ourselves to ground things in the objective and the literal, but infinitely explore the meanings, right? Because meanings not grounded in the objective is will, it's, it's like, oh, it seemed okay to me, right? right? But then truth only comes full circle, not just in the literal and not just in the meaning, but when it becomes evental. Evental is not we believe in something that happened. That is not that. Evental is we believe something happened that fundamentally shifts the way we see all other happenings after that. That's what evental is. That, that it's, it's not, the resurrection should not be a doctrine that we tick. It, it should be a fundamental way of seeing our world. See, resurrection as a doctrine allows for despair. My tomorrow simply repeated yesterday. Resurrection as a fundamental way of seeing the world does not. And, and, and at that point, Christianity gets very, very compelling very, very quickly right? Like if, if, if someone, it, this is the problem when, when we make Christianity primarily about the no response, the abstaining, like if, if you want to get ready to be challenged, right? Cause this is very challenging, right? So, so there's this rich guy and he comes up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, I'm in a room full of pastors. What does Jesus tell him? Keep the commands. Can you inherit eternal life by keeping the commands? Really? Was Jesus joking? Was he playing games with this man's soul? What if that man died in a donkey accident later? Right? I am quoting this in context. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commands. And then he's specific. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't sleep with other people's spouses. Honor your father and mother. What was the guy's response? Can't be that. I haven't struggled with that since I was a kid. Isn't that us? That's us. That is so us, right? Jesus then goes, so you, you don't struggle with the nose anymore. No, he goes, then one thing you lack, give what you have to the poor and eternal life can be yours, which is in and of itself another challenge. Jesus gives him two answers on how to inherit eternal life. Keep the commands and give what you have to the poor. Does that fit into our theology anywhere? And, and how far has Christianity come from Christ that a direct quote from Christ is now heresy? Like what, right? And the problem is not, let me set you free. Because the, 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 the teaching technique I'm using right now is called Calve Comer. It's it essentially, it's however long I make you hold tension is the better you'll feel when I relieve it, right? <laughs> so, right, so, so I'm making you sort of hold it for a second. Um, the, 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 the problem is not the doctrine. The problem is the imagination, right? So if you could hit that next slide for me, let me, let me illustrate this. Hit that next slide. Uh, hit the next one. So I'll come back to that in a second. So there's belief, but then there's the imagination of what we believe. And the imagination of what we believe is more powerful than the doctrine. The reason is, is our emotions will attach to our imagination, not the doctrine. So let's talk about eternal life. When I say eternal life in a Western world, Almost all people here, how do I go to heaven when you die? Right? So that's the problem. So, so if we re, let's reread that. Jesus, what must I do to go to heaven when I die? Because let's admit that's what we all thought, right? What must I do to go to heaven when, we, when I die? And Jesus goes, keep the commands. Well, then we, we get thrown into trauma because is Jesus saying you can keep the commands and go to heaven when you die. And then when he says, I've done that, he goes, okay, then give what you have to the poor. At no point does Jesus say, pray a prayer, ask me in your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior, eternal life can be yours. Never, never. Now the problem is not the doctrine, the problem is the imagination. See, in our world, eternal life means go to heaven when you die. In Jesus's world, eternal life had nothing to do with where you went when you died. Eternal, when a first century Jew said eternal life, what he meant was, is how do I connect with the spirit that created the world out of the primordial chaos, how do I connect with that, that spirit that, that maintains the world and will go on after I die? How do I touch that today? It'd be essentially, how do I live the God kind of life now? How do I do that? And Jesus goes, keep the commands. Keep the commands. Do that. And, and, and here's the problem with that, right? Is for most of us, we are the rich man. Right? So, so, so let me give you an example, right? I would bet a good chunk of money that most of us in this room, our story is not, I just barely made it through the week without sleeping with someone else's spouse. <laughs> right? Like, it's not your story. Like, God, I thank God. And, and look, if that's your struggle, 
keep struggling, right? But, but, but I would bet that's not the issue. I would bet, I, and I would bet for those of you who, did, who made it through the week without sleeping someone else's spouse, it's, you, you didn't not commit adultery because the Bible says don't. I would think it's just in there, right? You, 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 didn't, need, you didn't need to stand on a Bible verse to keep you from sleeping with someone else's spouse. You're, you're past that. I, I, I would bet, I would bet that most people in this room didn't just make it through the week without stealing. I bet. I would bet that most people in this room didn't just barely make it through the week without murdering somebody, right? I'd bet. I'd bet, and, and I'd bet that the reason, I'd bet the reason you didn't kill somebody is not because the Bible says don't. I would just think it's because you're not a killer, right? It's, it's, it's in there, right? This is why, this is why, I promise you I'm going somewhere with this. This is why if an atheist came in here right now and said, excuse me, I, I wanna be kind and authentic, I am an atheist, um, but I am seeking, and I would like to have coffee with somebody who will tell me what Christianity has brought to their life. What, what has Christianity meant to your life? That's, that's what I'd like to know. How many, of us, how many of us would be happy to have that conversation, right? All of us. But, but we would also want to vote on who gets to have that conversation, right? We wouldn't want to choose the person whose left eye twitches, you know. We, we'd, want, we'd want the normal person, right? And, and, and if we... And, 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 if, and if we sat down with an atheist and he said, what, what has Christianity done for your life? And, 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 and we go, okay, okay, first, Christianity is a safe community. We don't sleep with each other's spouses. Right? He would go, yeah, that's not a thing in atheism either. We, we don't sleep with each other's spouses either. We sleep with each other's spouses at about the same pace y'all do. Right? Oh, okay, 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 um, okay. All right, so the reason Christianity is so cool is because we don't steal from one another. The atheist would go, yeah, yeah, not a thing. We, okay, okay, we don't kill each other. Yeah, you know what? Not a thing either, not a thing either. See, see, see I, I saw a debate once between Penn Jillette, who's my favorite atheist, and a not so well thought out Christian, right? And the Christian was losing so bad. It was actually embarrassing. And, 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 and finally, the Christian lost his temper, which was worse. And he said, Pen, if there's no God and there's no hell, what keeps you from raping and murdering everyone you want? I was sitting there going. Pen Gillette said, nothing. I have raped and murdered everybody I want. That number just happens to be zero. And if you need God or hell to keep you from raping and murdering people, you're a psychopath. <laughs> now, this is the problem with making Christianity primarily about the no response. The no response has its place. But if it never moves to the more profound yes response, it's boring, right? If Christianity is primarily about what we abstain from, that has its place. But once you've mastered that in your heart, not perfect, but it's in its fully ingrained in your heart, then at some point we have to make Christianity about the yes response, the eventual response, the way that we take those stories and we fundamentally allow those stories to shape the way we see our whole world. Because it's normally not a doctrine problem. It's normally an imagination problem. If you're frustrated in your preaching, it could be because you're trying to force feed doctrine instead of addressing the imagination of how the doctrine works. One last illustration and then we'll have morning tea, okay? And we'll do the Q&A in the next one. Here's the thing, right? It is possible to have an orthodox doctrine but a pagan imagination, okay? Let me explain what I mean by that. All of us would believe that we're fully forgiven by the finished work of Christ on the cross. 
orthodox. But all of us likely felt guilty in the last 30 days. So we believe we're forgiven, but we see ourselves guilty, right? Or let me give you a better example. All of us would believe that God is not a singularity, that God is a divine relationship between three. Now, the, the, the early word for that was Trinity. That, that was in the 200s. Before the word Trinity, there was a word perichoresis, which was even better. And perichoresis was perimeter perichoresis choreograph, a, a, a circle dance. That God, God was a divine relationship of three that was so united, they appeared to be dancing as one in and out. When to step up, when to step back, when to honor, when to submit, when to take your turn, when to give someone else their turn. It was a perfect divine relationship between three. And all of us would believe that. All of us would affirm that as doctrine. But I've asked this all over the world. When you pray, what do you picture? Number one answer, I picture a guy on a throne. Well, that's Zeus, that's Apollo, that's Hermes. So you can have an orthodox doctrine, but a pagan imagination and your emotions will attach to that imagination. Number two answer, I just picture Jesus. You push him a little bit, which Jesus? Like my friend in Mexico, Jesus, Jesus? Or like, like Middle Eastern hippie Jesus? Or like blonde hair, blue eyed, sweet smelling of lavender and dal soap Jesus? Which Jesus? They go, shut up, shit, just Jesus. Yeah. Okay, just Jesus. So th third answer is, I picture a father. You push that a little bit. Whose father? Your father? My father? A third century Spanish peasant's father? A 16th century Swiss monk's father? Whose father? They go, just a father. It's like an ambiguous father. Yeah. Well, that would be a good song, right? You're an ambiguous father. It's who you are. It's who, right? Now, here's the problem with all three of those. All three of those are singularities. So we believe orthodox, but we have a pagan imagination, right? And here's the thing. Here's what the young people are looking for. The young people are looking for a better alignment between our imagination and our belief. Because an alignment of imagination and belief leads to orthopraxy, a better behavior, an eventual way of exploring truth. If you, if you want to ruin the Bible, speak of it only as literal. Actually, the best, the best way to explore truth in any form is explore the literal, the symbolic, and the eventual. And then once we do all three of those, we challenge where our imagination of how the belief works, if they actually are in alignment. When we can start doing that. We can, we can make this far, far, far more compelling. And your young people will be far, far, far less bored because listen, the Bible is full of these kind of things and it is awesome. It is awesome. Let's please, please, please not make it unawesome. You can't take the most awesome thing ever done, right, and make it boring. But that's sort of what we've done. And we didn't mean to, but we focused too much on the literal without an exploration of the meanings and the eventual nature of it, all right? So uh, that's, that's my time done for the, for the first session this morning. I, I, I hope that wasn't too um, ethereal or whatever. My, my intent and my heart was to be helpful and to give you language uh, for how we can better address these things. Don't judge people's questions. Be judged by it. There's a gap in our narrative. Christianity's not diminishing. It's being forced to grow up. And this is one way we can do that, okay? Let's, I'll, I'll hand this back to Pastor Ross, and he'll give you instructions around the morning tea. Grace and peace, everyone. Thank you for joining us. The Bayside Christian Church community aims to transform our city and beyond with the life and power of Jesus Christ. If you want to know more or just keep in touch, check us out at www.baysidechristianchurch.com.au or follow us on our social media sites at Bayside Christian Church.